0: Welcome to Plato's Pod, where we engage in a group discussion on selections from the complete works of Plato, the philosopher and geometer who wrote nearly 2400 years ago. Today is October 31st, 2021, and I'm your host, James Myers. I'm honored to join in dialogue with participants from the Toronto Philosophy and Calgary Philosophy meetup groups. Whether you have been with us before or are here for the first time, whether you have experience with Plato's works or are new to them, all are encouraged to add your voice to our dialogue. I'll begin by introducing one of the key themes from today's reading selection, which covers parts of uh, books three and four of The Republic with passages from Stephanus Reference 412b to 445e. Then I will invite participants to exchange ideas. And as they do so, I will briefly summarize and try to connect different ideas perspectives for further consideration. I've suggested three themes to focus our discussion today, which are posted on the shared drive that is linked to the meetup.com event notice. We can go in any direction the group chooses, but for everyone's benefit, I would ask that you relate your comments and opinions to Plato's text that we are discussing. To contribute your thoughts, I would ask participants to use the Raise Hands feature in Zoom. Calling your first name as it appears on your screen profile, I will invite you to speak in the order that hands are raised, giving precedence to those who haven't spoken before. After we finish recording in two hours, I invite any participants who wish to remain online for Plato's Cafe a casual half hour discussion on Plato or philosophy in general. So in our last episode, we continued our examination of the Republic with a focus on the first part of book two, in which Glaucon and Adamantus set forth reasoned arguments for the relative benefits of injustice over justice. Not that they believe those arguments, but so that the group can begin to explore a theoretical social organization or what they call a city for signs of justice. But when Glaucon proposes that they endow the city with luxuries that do not occur naturally, such as couches, tables, perfumed oils, incense, prostitutes, and pastries, Socrates concludes that to his thinking, their thought experiment has begun to produce a city that is not healthy. Socrates calls it a city in a fever that requires a powerful ruling class of guardians to protect its material luxuries and defend against its enemies. To prevent the abuse of the guardians' power against the citizens, Provisions are made to ensure the rulers are educated in a way that leaves them no choice but to remain dedicated to the defense of the fevered city that is theirs alone to govern, which we will discuss further today. So I thought we would pick up now on the themes of health and its connection to nature, health and nature being words that appear frequently in today's featured passages, with a selection that appears near the end of our reading. And then, with this perspective on health in mind, we can proceed to consider the challenges of raising faithful guardian class and of locating the four virtues in the city. We'll end today's episode by considering the nature of the soul as, quote, a community of three parts, and how justice and the other three virtues display themselves when the soul maintains its own unity and harmony, which Socrates holds as metaphors for a healthy city. We'll investigate these themes further in our next episode in two weeks with an examination of ruling through the application or misapplication of philosophy, when we will cover passages from 471a to 502c. So let's look now at 444d to to 444e with a proposition of Socrates for health as a function of nature. And in this, we may see a contrast to the proposals for the training of the guardians using what is now often referred to as the noble lie. So let me just share my screen here. And if everybody can see the, uh, the notes here that are displayed, they're also in the, uh, in the chat window if you wanted to access them there. So this is a passage from 444 D to E. Uh, and I'm just wondering if I could maybe call on um, Joel S to maybe just read this paragraph for us.
1: Sure, thanks, James. Um, Three themes to consider 444 D to E. To produce health is to establish the components of the body in a natural relation of control and being controlled, one by the other, while to produce disease is to establish a relation of ruling and being ruled contrary to nature. Then, Isn't to produce justice to establish the parts of the soul in a natural relation of control, one by the other, while to produce injustice is to establish a relation of ruling and being ruled contrary to nature. Virtue seems then to be a kind of health, fine condition, and well being of the soul, while vice is disease shameful condition and weakness. Thank
0: you for that, Joel. And I just, I thought it would be helpful to maybe start here just by referring back to what we discussed the last episode, when we talked about, uh, in particular, 373b to C. And I've just um, repeated that section here that I've got up on the screen. And this is the part where Socrates uh, says, Um, all right, I understand it isn't merely the origin of a city that we're considering, it seems, but the origin of a luxurious city. And that may not be a bad idea, for by examining it, we may very well see how justice and injustice grow up in the cities. Yet the true city, in my opinion, is the one we've described, the healthy one, as it were. But let's study a city with a fever, if that's what you want. So, this is what we discussed last time. So this is Socrates saying that he doesn't necessarily uh, subscribe to the nature of the city that they're setting up. He, he describes it as a one that's not healthy, one that's in a fever. And I realized as I was reading through this section for today's uh, readings that the concept of health uh, and disease keeps arising in in the you know various parts of this this reading today. I'm just wondering what people think about this definition that Joel just read for us as a general definition of health. So I, I think there's maybe particular types of health. You know we, there could be bodily health, mental health, um, healthy skepticism. There's all different ways that we can use the word health. So there's very there's there's various particular types of health. I'm just wondering what we think of this as a
2: general definition of health. Um, Anybody with thoughts on that? Does this apply as as, as a general definition of any sort of health? I'm just
0: wondering what what you think about this definition of health and its connection to nature uh, in relation to the guardian class in particular is is the guardian class is its relationship to the city a natural one and what is meant by nature here so this this is this definition that appears near the the end of our reading Uh, but it just occurred to me maybe to take it back to the beginning and and to how Socrates uh, frames this as a city in a fever so one that's not healthy. Nuri your thoughts? I
3: I just wanted to to, to um, clarify when when you say the guardian, like from this text, uh, are they not referring to like the lawmakers or is that applicable to all citizens in a city?
0: Mm-hmm. I think the, the guardians uh, are the ones that are being set up in this theoretical city that they're talking about. The guardians are the ones that are being set up uh, as the ruling class. Uh, so they they will be the powerful class that is given the right to govern, um, and therefore need to be educated very carefully so that they exercise that power of governing uh, without destroying the city, which is what uh, which is what we'll talk I think about a little bit further. So so thank you for that question. I think it, it clarifies the nature of the guardians. Jk, your thought?
4: Yeah, I just wanted to. Um Inquire into the uh, definition of nature, mm-hmm. you know, um, they, they haven't defined what adequately what nature really means. Um, when they talk about the guardians, they seem to, they are, uh, they seem to um, kind of um, require that the guardians, um, you know, maybe uh, ignore, you know, uh, what is natural. They have to repress or Repress their, um, you know, their um, their drives for for comfort and pleasure. Um, in order to be good guardians, right? They they have to kind of like uh, be regimented and uh, denied uh, a, a private, a a uh, comfortable uh, and uh, and uh, pleasurable and private life or uh, the. Uh, or was they they somehow somehow have to repress their their individual um, natural drives, perhaps, you know, to become regimented.
0: You raise a good question, JK. I mean, what is the definition of nature here? And then you also raise the the question of is the guardian class natural? I think you're you're referring in particular to uh, four sixteen d to e, in which. Uh, it's proposed that the guardian should not possess any private property. Um, some of them, they, they should have a... Uh, they should None of them should have a house or storeroom that isn't open for all to enter at will. They should receive their uh, pay by taxation on the citizens. They should eat in common messes and live together uh, like soldiers in a camp. You use the word regimented. Um, so this is this is this idea that their natural tendencies perhaps are not what they are set up to be, um, and so what is meant by nature here? So are, are, are the, is is the natural tendency of the guardians to maybe um, not be as moderate or as uh, self-controlled as we would like them to be? Any thoughts on on uh, J.K.'s question about the meaning of nature? Um, I've Uh, Eva, and then Nuri.
5: I'm wondering if we switch the the word nature with system. Is he referring to two dimensions of the meaning of the system? Like, first one is health and body. It's physical. And the second one is justice and the soul. So when we are healthy, Yeah, the system just runs, but when there is a problem, when there is a virus, the body focuses on that and works on that. And either like uh, bringing up pain or using different parts of the systems, the body becomes healthier and more resistant to a new virus or a new situation after uh an issue with health and body and i wonder if we are looking at the justice perspective to the soul each action we face or each problem like mental problem we face is it kind of like a fix to the soul and is this is it like resilient to the soul so if if I call nature as system it's kind of like a rebuilding and becoming to live in in a good body and a good in and in a good just system
0: Interesting use of the word system there I think that's that's really a good you know food for thought, I think, for us, and and you connected it to the soul, which is certainly where this, uh, today's reading ends. Uh, So there's health in the body, and there's health in the soul. Um, And and I think you referred to the idea of the system fixing itself. Um, And that's something that occurred to me with this definition of nature, is it perhaps something that is self-regulating? I mean, if we think of, you know, the natural world, the natural world is able to regenerate itself, it's able to repair itself. Um, and so maybe what you said, Eva, is maybe that kind of connection that we're looking for um, in terms of the meaning of nature,
2: the question that um, JK challenged us with. Henry, what do you think about that? I was, James, I was just, um, you responded to JK's uh,
3: comments and, you said about, uh, you know, the guardians being raised uh, without uh, material things, like almost like soldiers. I was just wondering if that was in the text. I must have missed something. If that part that you talked about was in the text.
0: Yeah, that that part, that I read, I think was from 416 D to E. Um, and that's where, uh, in particular, where it says that the guardians will live in common messes um, and live together like soldiers in a camp. Uh, so that was 416 B to E. Um, I think the idea there is that they don't want to subject the guardians to any sort of temptation because the guardians are very powerful. And if the guardians yeah. succumb to temptation, uh, so
3: they
0: then will they will put- turn their power against the city.
3: That was in a previous uh, previous uh, text, right? Not this week's text.
0: Uh, well, that's that's in this week's text. Yeah, we're covering from four twelve b to four forty five e. But certainly, when we talked about the guardians um, last week, uh, you know, it was again. I think you know, starting that starting along that idea that uh, um, you know that they would have to be carefully regimented and, and controlled.
3: Sorry, I I must have copied the wrong text. I have 444
0: D to E. Okay, uh, well, 444 D to E is what we're talking about here in this, the, it's right at the end of today's reading. And that 444 D to E is where um, Socrates gives this definition of health. So it comes at the end of today's reading, but if we go back towards the beginning of today's reading, um then that's where we get this idea of the guardians and are the guardians really is is that guardian system that they're talking about a healthy system or is it or is it a a system that's more feverish like this city that socrates says is feverish so because it's a feverish city do we have to set up these unnatural mechanisms like the guardians to protect the city does
2: that make sense
3: i i feel they need to to um to you know, if if you just mix with the same set of people, the, the same guardians, you do not get different ideas. You do not really know what the people are experiencing. So I think it might be a feverish, <clears throat> more of the same. Um, so I don't know how best the guardians can uh, sustain if they don't uh, understand what people are really, the ordinary people are really going through or the less fortunate. So that's my my thing on that one.
0: And, the, and that's a good point that you make, that uh, if the guardians are being separated from the citizens of the city, will they really understand what's going on and what the motivations of the citizens are? I mean, here the guardians are being set up as being rulers, but if they're kind of separated and they're not participating in the economy the way that the other citizens are participating, I mean, how good is this rule going to be? How natural is this rule going to be? So that's a good question. Thank you for, for raising it, a good point. And we'll look at that when we talk about what's often now called the noble lie, which is which is what uh, they consider that this this kind of myth that they're going to feed the guardians, that it's going to make the guardians be faithful to depend, uh, defendants of the city. Jose, what are your thoughts? <coughs>
6: Okay, just, just answering to the observation that the guardians are repressed, uh, I don't think so, because according to Plato, uh, if you are, they, they are supposed to be the most virtuous people, the most knowledgeable with the best wisdom and everything, and if you are virtuous, you, you don't have really, you are not repressed, when you live a virtuous life, and this is the way that they live. So now, this, uh. Some, some somewhere in the text he says that uh, the things that uh, that make uh, uh, make damage to the city are wealth and poverty so they <clears throat> and he thinks that the guardians they should live without wealth because because wealth is what they start to corrupt uh, people so they live according to uh, plato i think they live in the and, and another thing is that the guardians. They are supposed to live in their nature because their nature, because they are they are the best people, they are virtuous and everything. Uh they have to live in this virtuous life. And so they are their nature, is the nature is like that. So they, they will be happy, really. This is and uh, the same thing with the auxiliaries, because uh, the, the well, he divides at one point the, the guardians between the I don't know what name they put the rulers and the auxiliaries, and the auxiliaries are the warriors. So they and they, they have courage is their main deal, so they really live according to their nature. This is my
2: point. Well, thank you
0: for that point. It's uh. And there's, you raise the auxiliaries, and so we will just explain. I think what what Socrates is talking about there. You know, they first they make the assumption that the guardians have to be the older people because the older people are naturally wise, and that the younger people who have kind of these guardian-like characteristics of virtue, perhaps as you as you explained it, they'll be the auxiliaries. So they'll be kind of like I I read the auxiliaries as kind of guardians in training but the, it's separated by age. So this is a kind of uh, uh, merit by age kind of system that they're, that they're
6: considering setting up here. Um, no, I, 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 I think the auxiliaries, I think he initially he had the guardians only, mm-hmm. and after that he devised further the rulers and the auxiliaries, and the auxiliaries are the warriors, the soldiers. They are. They are like their mission is to be soldiers and warriors. And the rulers are the ones that the philosophers, are the, the ones that they are making the laws, they what the rule, the real rulers.
2: Mm-hmm.
6: I, I don't think that if he, he said that the best guardians they will be the rulers.
2: Yeah,
0: yeah. And, and and yeah, I mean certainly, um, and to the extent that the auxiliaries are the younger ones, they're more suited for fighting and. Uh, I think there's certainly, uh, when, and I think it's at uh, 4.13, 4.13, uh, no, sorry, I was just looking for the section where they're talking about the subjecting the uh, guardians and auxiliaries to all sorts of tests, especially the auxiliaries, because they're the younger ones, yeah. that they, they need to be subjected to all sorts of tests to have these temptations put in front of them to see how they respond yeah, uh, and if they if they maintain themselves, if they govern themselves well, then they're suitable to be the governors of the city. I think that's so. There's that that passage, and I think it was I think I gave you the wrong reference there, but there's a passage where they talk about having to put these people to a you know trial by fire sort of test uh, to see if they're really naturally suited to. Uh, to govern the city, so so uh, yeah. No, thank you for that. And it's uh, let, let's go to Moshe.
2: Your thoughts, Moshe? Uh,
7: yeah. Okay. Um. Yeah, I think there's a um, um, an essential equivocation uh, in the uh, or ambiguity to the idea of guardian, um, because clearly we think we we, we want to think uh, the guardians in an earlier uh, section are people who have to uh, have a dual role, okay? They have the role of of defending the state, the city um, the city state against outside aggressors, and they also have the role of keeping the peace inside the city. so um, in addition to that, um we also think of the guardians as the intellectual guardians, the, um, um, the statesmen, the philosophers who are going to be able to show uh, and demonstrate uh, to the people uh, what is true virtue and, and, and what isn't. Uh, in this, um, in the, the section that you were just referring to, uh, which is in the bottom of 213, just before 214, where you're talking about um, after they've had uh, you know the the um, after they've had the three tests of violence and toils and pain and finally um, uh, um, terrors of some kind um, of some kind and again pass them into pleasure uh, and prove them more thoroughly than go um, and. Uh, and prove them more thoroughly than gold is proved in the in the furnace, so they have to have these three they have to have these three tests, and they will become the guardians and then and he who at every age as a boy, a youth, or a mature man, has come out of the trial victorious and pure shall be appointed a ruler and guardian of the state so even though Socrates wants to start out with the older people, he says you know i mean the, well first of all the older people aren't going to be able to either police the internal city or defend against the um you know the um the external threats when socrates was in the peloponnesian wars he wasn't 70 years old at that time okay and so here it's saying that you know if you prove yourself um, and you you have these uh, you know you have these virtues and you you, you can become a, you are a philosopher then regardless of age, you can have, you know, you can become a guardian. So I like what you say about, um, James, about, um, about uh, the auxiliaries being, you know, uh, guardians um, in training. Uh, but I would, you know, prefer to, you know, to differentiate, you know, the guardians as the auxiliaries as opposed to the philosopher king and the people in that particular that particular status. I also want to comment on two other things. One is this idea of a feverish city. Okay, um, when I read that passage, I mean it. It 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 it, uh, it makes me laugh a little bit. Okay, because what I mean when, when Socrates starts talking about the state, first he starts talking about the state as having two or three men together. And it isn't until we've built up, you know, some idea that we're going to need uh, to have merchants and guardians and things like that, that even introduce the idea of women. Okay. And then Glaucon comes along with this thing about, well, we're going to need to have more than merchants and importers and exporters, which is what the merchants are, and the guardian class and things like that. we're also going to need, you know, people who, you know, are artisans and prostitutes and, and and these other things. and to me what is being described here is not a difference in uh, in kind, but a difference in degree when Socrates is talking about a feverish city. It's like the difference between slow dancing and fast dancing. Fast dancing can be feverish, but it's still dancing, okay? And when Socrates is talking about uh, a feverish city, Nothing that he's saying about the feverish city does not also apply to the non-feverish. You know, nothing that he's saying about dancing uh, as applying to fast dancing does not also apply to to slow dancing. And the third thing that I want to bring up is this: this con- go back to this circle back to this concept of nature. It is assumed a lot of times. Socrates is always talking about, and a lot of people are talking about the nature of man, the nature of a person, or something like that. But it's important not only to ask the question about, well, what do we mean by nature, but also, does man have a nature? Because a nature implies regularity and properties and um, uniformity and um, and uh, predictability. Uh, all of those things seem to be, um, not included in the idea of a person because people aren't predictable. People aren't, I use the word people not so that, you know, I mean, for, um, because to, to, include men and women, um, people aren't predictable. People don't, uh, don't always follow the same rules. Uh, people don't always do what's in their, their own best interest. Okay. But Socrates is talking about this entity that's supposed to be always acting in its own best interest and things like that. And I have just one other thing to say because this this is such an exciting thing that we're 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 doing here. Um, uh, it's not my mind, therefore, never mind. But I'll just leave it for those three things, and and I'll come back to that last point later.
0: Well, and, and thank you. I mean, you 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 really touched on a lot of very interesting points, and I you know that question that you asked right at the end there, does man have a nature, I think is one that we really ought to consider, um, you know, especially as we get towards the end of today's reading, where we're talking about the soul and, um, you know, with this proposition that the soul has three parts. And so, you know, is any one of those parts or are are all of those parts established by nature? So that's a very good question, I think, and one that we need to consider. You you talked about, uh, just briefly summarize, you talked about the uh, role of the guardians in both external and internal defense of the city, which I think is a very key point. And this is something that I think comes up later in this reading where I think Socrates is really using the city as a metaphor for the soul um, and the idea of the soul having to defend itself internally. And, and there's this beautiful quote that I want to get to at the end when we, when we talk about the nature of justice as being something that's internal um, you know, you mentioned the guardians are not necessarily the philosopher kings, and that's a good point that uh, really touches on what we'll cover in our next episode when we get to that part about the philosopher kings in, in and you know, you know, a little bit further on in the uh, in the Republic. Uh, so that's that's something very much to keep in mind. And then this this idea that you brought up is the you know is the feverish city uh, a faster version of the healthy city, and you know maybe. I see the the distinction between the healthy city and the feverish city as one that's the, the healthy one is based on a natural ability to uh self-regulate, whereas the feverish city is does not have it, it, because it, it is endowed with these unnatural luxuries, uh it loses that natural ability to regulate itself. But I think maybe another way of viewing it, according to what you the way you put it, is maybe is this. City feverish, because it lacks a sense of balance. Uh, you know, maybe going faster is is a way that it loses its balance. And maybe that's why Socrates thinks that it's a feverish city, but let's let's certainly investigate that um, that thought, you know, and, and whether anybody else sees this as a feverish city, or is this distinction that Socrates is making uh, not necessarily uh, correct. So, We'll go to uh so thank you for that, Moshe, and we'll go to Joel. <clears throat>
1: Thanks. Thanks, James. I just wanted to um touch on JK's uh definition of nature and also um kudos to Eva to uh introducing the word system. And I guess the way I understand it or I first apprehend it is uh nature in its pure form, is what we now think of as science. Whereas uh, system is man-made or man interacting with science to create something. In nature, we think nothing of a lion jumping on a gazelle and eating it. And nature regulates how often a lion does that by how hungry it is. Uh, or uh, how long it will take before uh, the corpse is inedible. Man intervenes in this food chain with refrigeration and preservatives and things like that. So we have systems for regulating those things. Whether we have gotten so far away from um, Plato's times in having such complex ways of or such complex systems of regulating everything from drawing water from the river to uh, purifying water that comes out of our individual taps. And at what point does that become feverish? And I, I can't help but being struck by the emphasis on property among the ruling classes, because I think it's well accepted by many people now in our modern democratic societies and perhaps even more so in the autocratic ones that it's this pursuit of wealth and extreme wealth that uh, seems to corrupt uh, the systems of justice. And we're still struggling with ways to remedy that. Thank you.
0: Yeah. And, and, you know, I think you raise that distinction between uh, systems that are constructed by humans versus uh, you know, we could still consider nature itself as a system, but it's it's not one that requires human intervention. It it it, it just governs itself. Um, so I think that, that was an important distinction. And then, you know, I think you, you touched on the question of wealth and it's, you know, we can infer the opposite to be poverty. And I think um, it was either Jose or Moshe or maybe both that sort of touched on this idea of, uh, you know, of, of this of This idea of, of divisions within the city, and I think, well, I mean, Moshe, you talked about how uh, the city requires internal defense, and maybe that's, you know, against these divisions in, city and, in the city, and certainly um, Socrates talks in about the middle part of today's reading about this division between the wealthy and the poor, and the risk that this division will create actually two cities. So it's very important to keep one city. And again, Socrates is using this, we'll see at the end of today's reading, this one city is a metaphor for one soul. Um, So we have to keep the city from dividing against itself, because the soul can't be divided against itself. So if we're looking for justice in the city, and we're going to find it in the soul, neither can be divided against itself. But he makes the point that wealth and poverty uh, is a division. And wealth and poverty are, you know, to, to go to what you just said, Joel, Kind of um, man-made systems. The wealth and poverty don't occur in nature itself. Um, so, uh, thank you for raising that and for tying it, I think, to some of the previous comments that uh, that were made. Uh, we'll go to J.K. and your thoughts, J.K.
4: Yeah, I guess the uh, the whole idea of the state is also um, a kind of um, you know a kind of um, <clears throat> artifice of uh, created by a definition of reason an aspect of, um, you know, one part of reason is that we create these kind of, um, artificial systems, you know, structures that, um, that, you know, um, you know, uh, redefine what, n- what nature is, what our natural human nature is and, and how to regulate, you know, um, human nature. Mm. And so you can see that, uh, you know, in, in terms of, um, you know the uh, you know the idea of the guardians you know being uh, regimented and uh you know in such a way that they have to uh somehow um deny their their natural uh, drives and and wants and so forth um you know you can see it in in uh in all the his, you know history of of uh stories of um of soldiers you know um in wars, you know, where they they pillage and you know rampage and rape and so forth, that this these kind of uh, you know uh, when they were in the state in in inside the state they were very re- re- very well um, you know behaved and so forth and repressed, but once they get into the chaos of war, all these um, all these drives come out you know in ugly ways. And uh, so you can see the kind of uh, the result of, of the explosion of, of what has been repressed come out. And this is, you know, this is pretty uh, uh common, you know, in, in, in all the, uh, the stories of, of, of what happens in, in, the, in the war, wartime.
2: And uh, yeah, so. Mm-hmm. It, 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 I mean, certainly, I guess war is kind of this this feverish
0: state itself, you know, where you know it's it's governed by passions rather than reason necessarily, and um, so it's a good point to consider. You know, does it, I mean, when you're when you're faced with a war type situation, you know, and maybe the idea that we talked about in our last episode of this materialist society that's being created, uh, needing to wage wars to defend its material? um, Does that give rise to these tendencies to um, to do these terrible things and to be unjust in a way? Um, And it goes back maybe to the question that Moshe asked is, does man have a nature? Uh, Is our nature to be bad? Is our nature to be good Uh, or anything in between? You know, and it's it's this idea that I've just got uh, selected this uh, Piece that maybe we can read in in a minute um, from four thirteen a to four thirteen d, which I've got here on the screen. This idea that um, you know, how do we naturally deal with good things versus bad things, um, and and do we make a natural distinction between the two? That's a good point to raise. Thank you. We'll go to Nuri and then to Moshe.
3: Yeah, I think I think um, we are uh, because of our. The nature of man we are more on the pessimistic side in a way uh we we're kind of wired that way, perhaps, but we we have evolved uh, the good from the evil and we try to balance because we we can do that through thinking and we don't have to res resort to lower uh you know, uh, levels as as a sort of animal in the animal kingdom. um so so that was one of my points. and the, what I wanted to talk about the guardians, I think there is people in, in today's society that do not want to own anything or not that materialistic, especially if they're in a in a, in a, <clears throat> in work where they want to see unbiased and you know just do the good for society but a majority of people I, I'm not sure this uh, Socratic way um, resonate with our politicians and lawmakers um, they wouldn't last if they're not allowed to own we, we reward them a lot with um, with salaries and incentive so that they Would not corrupt but yet we still have that corruption uh today thank you
0: and in what you just said about this you know these tendencies in our leaders i think is a very important connection to what we'll talk about in our next episode is you know how do we how do we get the nature of those leaders to be kind of more in balance and i think balance is a word that you used when you at the beginning of your comments, in terms of what you talked about, are, uh, you know, what we do in the process of thinking, and that's certainly something that we'll talk about in a little bit today when we talk about the soul. You know, this idea that reason, so this this idea that the soul is divided in three parts, and reason kind of sits in the middle of of the other two extremes, uh, and maybe reason is something that gives us that balance, that ability to balance. And I think you use the word balance, so I appreciate that. Um, so let's let's follow up on that uh, on that thought that you just raised.
2: Um, we'll go to Moshe and then to Jane. Um, okay,
7: my follow-up is, well, we'll see if it's a follow up. Um, Socrates is um, well, first of all, Socrates is very aware um, of the problems uh, I think that Nick raised about. Uh, you know, when the guardian goes out and he's in war and he's in the uh, Hobbesian state of nature again, that he's gonna uh, do all these terrible things. Um, That's why uh, Socrates, when he's describing the ideal city is putting the guardians through uh, these very severe tests to find out uh, if they are capable of going out to war and just defending the city and defeating the enemy and not doing uh, all these atrocities. And I know, James, I'm sure you're gonna get into it later that, uh, you know, he's, Socrates is gonna say that, you know, that um, men are a mixture of these different qualities of gold and of silver and of bronze. And that what we wanna do is we want to uh, identify people who have, uh, let's say the, uh, the silver in them, the guardians, And uh, we're going to uh, enhance that through, we found it through nature, we're gonna enhance it through education, and we're gonna try to purify that. And the implication being that there are also gonna be, some people who are just pure silver, and uh, they will be paradigms and be able to go out and and help educate um, and indoctrinate and uh, mind wash the partially silver people to go out. And when they do war, they're just going to go out and defeat the enemy Tell him uh, take his fields uh, and not harm, you know, animals or or people uh, or or anything like that. The I also want to go back to this idea that the reason why we're studying the state is because um, back at, at um, around three sixty eight three sixty nine, you know, we we made the assumption that that the state, the city, made up of people, has the same qualities that the people do. And it was an old Greek idea that you know if you have a virtuous, if you populate a city with virtuous people, you're going to have a virtuous city. So wouldn't it be um, uh, easier to study uh, uh, the state, which is larger than than the individual and decide what justice is? And therefore we can go and we can go from the macrocosm to the microcosm and be able to talk about what justice is, um, you know, in in, in terms of the people. So what I what I I, I, I want to be sort of a purist here and say that when when Socrates is describing in this city as the guardians, they're he, he's trying to make uh he 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 might uh he probably realizes that you know that that all these horrible things come about in real war, but he wants to describe a city in which that kind of thing wouldn't come about, and 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 I I think we have to to I, I find it better to deal with Plato on his own terms and then pick them apart from the inside, as opposed to bringing in these empirical things, which you know rhetorically we could certainly argue against them
0: thank you for that and and you know you raised the something that i think we want to just talk about here just in a minute which is that that what's called the noble lie which is where they tell the guardians that uh, they are made of metal and they, they are born of the earth uh and that's i think that's maybe an attempt to you know create this natural connection but it's it's an attempt to create it by myth. Um, so that's something that we can certainly uh, investigate, and, and then, as you pointed out, you know, they they have tried to create the city, thinking that they can, if they can locate justice in the city, then they can locate it in the individual. So from going from the larger to the smaller, and that's something that we'll uh, we'll get to in probably about fifteen minutes. Um, so uh, we'll we'll hang on to those ideas, but thank you for raising them, uh, and we'll go to Jane. Welcome, Jane.
8: Hi, everybody. I'm really glad to be uh, joining the session today. Um, I guess I'm going to be backtracking a little bit to the original question of what nature and the word natural would mean in the context of the Plato dialogue. Um, To me, and I I really like the uh, word combination of human nature. It was raised a little bit earlier on. And it would seem to me that uh, people humanity once once we began to speak use language as an active tool human nature is something that is not it it i guess it lost its connection to what we perceive nature to be nowadays so human nature became something not something sourced within nature but something that is actually cultivated and cultured by people so human nature is something that is actually unnatural in a sense, and depends on the culture where where the person is growing up or is being raised. So what would be perceived as human nature within ancient Greece is something completely and totally different than what we would well, not totally and completely different. that's that's a, an an overstatement. but there would be a lot of differences, I think uh, in those in those two understandings of the same word. Um, it's, uh, it's also interesting about the healthy and unhealthy city and how healthy and unhealthy would relate to natural and unnatural, because in nature, the, the state of illness or disease is actually a part of the natural cycle. So we, we don't have any organisms, uh, living creatures that do not go through disease or through suffering and so on and so on. So it would seem that those things are natural and are a means of counterbalancing and giving, well, if we're talking about society, giving society and individuals within the society a, a feeling of balance. So even though a feverish city would be something perhaps negative in connotation, as we can see that we can see that in the modern society too there's a lot of criticism against the civilized society which is moving too quickly and overheating and is in a sense in a sort of feverish in a feverish state <clears throat> i think i'm going to i'm sorry i got distracted so i think i lost my train of thought so i'm going to i'm going to leave it there as well as i would i would raise the question of good and bad things um being um, addressed against natural and unnatural. So bad things are just as natural as good things are. I'm going to leave it out there because I, I kind of lost my thought um, in the process. Thank you.
0: And thank you for that. I, you touched on this idea of uh, human nature as being something that's maybe necessarily cultivated, I think was the word that you used or cultured. And uh, I think that's a good um, that's a good uh, thing to remember and we talked about this I think last time as well in this idea that um, you know I think if we accept that none of us can live on our own and that we need others in order to survive then naturally we have to live in some sort of society and naturally then some sort of culture cultivation arises and I think that's uh, an important point to keep in mind. Uh, so I think that's uh, that, that's good to remember. And then, as you said, nature itself has disease, but it also has regeneration, and I think that's a, a point that we can keep in mind. I'd like to move here to this discussion of the Noble Lie, which is at four fourteen c, or what's called the Noble Lie now. But I just wanted to introduce it, maybe with a short reading. If uh, if I could have a volunteer for Socrates and Glaucon in this particular section here, it's a relatively short one. Um, And I just wanted to introduce this reading by recalling what we discussed last time or actually I think it was in our first episode on the Republic, it was in our first episode at 509 a this definition of, of the good and so I put it on this page here next to this image of a prisoner in a cave with images being projected on the wall in front of him. And uh, so the definition of good that we talked about uh, two episodes ago is so that what gives truth to the things known and the power to know to the knower is the form of the good. So I just wanted to keep that in mind maybe if we can
2: read this short section. Uh, I don't know if I would have a volunteer for either Socrates or Glaucon. I could do Socrates. I could, I could do one. Okay. Uh, if you
0: do Glaucon then, Neri, and then I could do Socrates? Sure. Okay. So this is at 413a to 413d in which Socrates is discuss- discussing with Glaucon. So um, I'll start with Socrates. I think the discarding of a belief is either voluntary or involuntary. Voluntary when one learns that the belief is false. Involuntary in the case of all true
2: beliefs.
3: I understand voluntary discarding, but
0: not involuntary.
2: What's that? Don't you know that people are voluntarily
0: deprived of bad things, but involuntarily deprived of good ones? And isn't being deceived about the truth a bad thing, while possessing the truth is good? Or don't you think that to believe the things that are is to possess the truth?
3: That's right. And I do think that people are involuntarily deprived of true opinions.
0: But can't they also be deprived by theft, magic spells, and compulsion?
3: No, I don't understand that again.
0: I'm afraid I must be talking like a tragic poet. By the victims of theft, I mean those who are persuaded to change their minds, or those who forget because time, in the latter case, and argument in the former, takes away their opinions without their realizing it. You understand now? Yes. By the compelled, I mean those whom pain or suffering causes to change their mind.
3: I understand that. And you're right.
2: The victims of magic, I think you would agree,
0: are those who change their mind because they are under the spell of pleasure or fear.
3: It seems to me that everything that deceives does so by casting a spell.
2: Then, as I said just now, we
0: must find out who are the best guardians of their conviction that they must always do what they believe to be the best for the city. We must keep them under observation from childhood and set them tasks that are most likely to make them forget such a conviction or be deceived out of it. We must select whoever keeps on remembering it and and isn't easily deceived and reject the others. Do you agree? And so I just thought we would introduce this this concept of the noble lie, which is at uh, four fourteen uh, C and D, uh, by this little reading here, which is just th- this idea that we've got to make sure that the guardians always do what they believe to be best for the city, and you know th- this idea that you know we naturally want to do good things, and so if 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 we are deprived of good things, it's involuntary. but we naturally want to get rid of bad things. So we voluntarily get get rid of bad things, but it's involuntary to get rid of good things. And so remembering you know good is that which gives truth to the things known and the power to know to the knower. Um, the question is, are they in creating this guardian class with this myth that they're going to uh, propose? Is that actually good? Is or are they casting a spell? Uh, are they like the this image and the, the my background of the screen? Are they acting like uh, the men on the parapet uh, in the allegory of the cave? So this this image has the the man on the parapet holding this little image of a bird, casting a shadow of the bird on the wall, and it's got the the prisoner tied. Um, unable to look in any other direction except to see this image on the wall and thinking that it's true. And I'm wondering if maybe with the guardians with what they're proposing in the in this noble lie is to kind of create this false image. And they're doing so because they need to make sure the guardians are controlled and they want to they want to propagate this, this falsehood. So I'll just briefly read the um, the, what they propose uh, with this with this myth and it's, uh, so so Socrates calls it a useful falsehood, Uh, and he says it's a Phoenician story, which describes something that has happened in many places, and then he says, you know, when when Glaucon says, well, let's hear you tell the story, and uh, Socrates says, well, I really hesitate, and Glaucon, you know, says, "Why, why do you hesitate, and Socrates says, when you hear it, you'll realize that I have every reason to hesitate, and Glaucon encourages him to go ahead, and So then Socrates says, I'll tell it then, though I don't know where I'll get the audacity or even what words I'll use. I'll first try to persuade the rulers and the soldiers and then the rest of the city that the upbringing and the education we gave them and the experiences that went with them were a sort of dream. That in fact, they themselves, their weapons, and the other craftsmen's tools were at that time really being fashioned and nurtured inside the earth. And then when the work was completed, the earth, who was their mother? delivered deliver all of them up into the world. Therefore, if anyone attacks the land in which they live, they must plan on its behalf and defend it as their mother and nurse and think of the other citizens as their earthborn brothers. That's kind of what's referred to as the you know the noble falsehood or the noble lie. Um, you know They're going to create this connection between nature, you know, the earth. And and these guardians are born of the earth. You know, they, they come from nature. Um, so it's not just that they're defending the city. They are defending the earth itself. Uh, and they are born of the earth. Um, and so I wonder, like, you know, how do we deal with this? Knowing that what we've discussed about the
2: allegory of the cave, uh, is this like casting a spell? Your thoughts, Jose? Uh, yes, I wanted to uh
6: in... <clears throat> previous to this, uh, to this reading, in the book, uh, it's in the book three, but in three eighty nine B, that is previous. It is a passage that is a prelude to. He says, moreover, we have to be concerned about truth as well, for if what we say now is correct and and false falsehood, so of no use to the gods is useful to people as a form of drug. Clearly, we must allow only doctors to use it, not private citizens. So he, he goes a, a little bit more, and uh, the, what he's saying is that uh, uh, <clears> the <throat> like the ruling the ruling like the garden, the, they they are they, they are authorized. They, they are like it's, it's good for them to tell to tell this, uh, this lies to the people as a form of drug but uh this this uh, analogy this is yeah we must allow only doctors to use it, so not anyone. so if private citizens they lie, this is a crime, but if they like the the, the ruling they lie is uh, for the good of the city is not a bad thing. this is in three eighty nine b
2: and and thank you
0: for that connection also to you know that and the doctor you know so the doctor is presumably somebody who is charged with um you know maintaining health and yeah you know so the question is are there types of lies that can be propagated or types of myths that can be propagated that are healthy um, and that aren't true Uh, knowing what we know about the definition of the good from 509a uh, is that which gives truth to the things known, and the power to know to the knowers. So, are we depriving the power to know um, from these guardians, and are we giving them the truth? Or are we giving them? Or are we feeding them with untruth?
2: Um, Moshe, your thoughts on that?
7: Um, I just want to go on a little bit further in what you were reading, James, mm-hmm. because the the royal line, um, true. I replied, says Socrates, but there is more coming. I've only told you half. Citizens, we shall say to them in our tale, you are brothers, yet God has framed you differently. Some of you have the power of command and in composition of these, he has mingled gold, whereof also uh, they have the greatest uh, honor. Others he has made of silver to be auxiliaries and others who are to be husbandsmen and craftsmen, he has composed of brass or iron, and the species are generally uh, will generally be preserved in the children. You know, so these traits go on from uh, generation to generation. This is a very important passage when he's trying to stratify society, and when he's also going to be defining justice. But the thing that I want to point out is that. He, uh, his lips are quivering when he's telling the tale of the old old Phoenician, okay, because he can look on the Phoenician uh, as um, uh, they're they're clearly not in the same status as the Athenians, okay. Because if I remember earlier, the Phoenicians and the and the Thucydians, they were warlike, and then there was another group of people. Oh, and, and the Egyptians and some other group they were always grubbing you know for money and uh, these were not the kinds of things that we wanted we wanted to to emulate. Nevertheless this story by the Phoenicians is um, is, 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 we call it today a creation myth okay it's where we came from and we hold uh, people without investigating hold a lot of you know creation myths you know God created the world in seven days or, you know, (laughs) the the Big Bang came and, you know, uh, all the atoms split apart and created clouds and stars and heavy elements and things like that. The Greeks had their own creation myths. So even though he's criticizing, uh, you know, he's criticizing the Phoenician uh, uh, creation myth, he has no problem setting up his city on the whole idea of this creation myth, which has broken people down into different elements, gold, silver, and bronze, and has made them so that they are, um, you know, they become uh, permeable and malleable, and some of them are pure and 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 some of them are not. We have to rely upon, uh, we have to rely upon education. And if you think about this, it's terrifying to think that Plato has built up this entire idea of the of the city in which he can describe what uh, temperance, wisdom, courage, and justice is, and then go and talk about temperance, courage, wisdom, and justice in the individual as a microcosm of that on a royal lie. And because it's a problem because logically, truth cannot come from falsehood. so if if we want to accept this as the truth, The foundation of this is a falsehood. And I think, just from a standpoint of understanding Plato, I take this to be very interesting.
2: Well, thank you. And that, um, you know, the idea that this myth is
0: to propagate down into the other classes as well. Um, And I think it's also said that, you know, a person can move from one level of, you know, like bronze to silver or silver to gold or gold down to silver. Uh, is interesting now I I would wonder you know because Socrates says he says you know when you hear it you'll realize that I have every reason to hesitate and uses the word reason and reason is something that comes up at the end of this reading in terms of the soul you know reason is that which calculates and that which you know drives us towards truth Um, And I'm wondering, you know, whether Socrates is being a little bit rather, you know, tongue-in-cheek, you know, when he says that he has every reason to hesitate. Uh, And I'm wondering whether Socrates is actually saying that cities should be set up this way. Now, he's said that this is an unhealthy city. He said it's a feverish city. And is he saying that because it's a feverish city, it needs to be this way? But if we have a healthy city, it shouldn't be this way. And then again, you know, to relate it to the allegory of the cave, you know, in the allegory of the cave, they're talking about how truth is discerned, um, you know, from among the images that we're seeing And this image of the the prisoner staring at the, or this idea of the prisoner staring at images on the wall, thinking that they're truth. Um, You know, I'm wondering whether, you know, this relationship here of the guardians is really not... know is really similar to this idea of the prisoner in the cave and and would Socrates actually be saying that this is a healthy thing to do uh and so I I think it's a it's a question that I, I I think we need to hear from everybody on that question is is Socrates really saying that this is the way we should govern ourselves or if we are healthy we wouldn't govern ourselves this way I think that's that's a question I would raise let's let's keep that question and and let's see what everybody thinks about that.
2: We'll
6: move to Jose. I I just want to read a short paragraph of some notes that I took. It says from this myth, Socrates' myth functions as a religion. It explains the origin of life. It bestows meaning upon the lives of believers, but convincing them that they have been made to perform a certain role within the world and it inspires feeling of fellowship. Despite the truth, truthfulness or false, falsehood of myths and religions, Socrates clearly believed that societies benefit from a unifying belief system. Whether a society's belief system is true or false is irrelevant. In the case of a novel lie, at least Socrates values the health and security of the state over truth. Perhaps he
2: realizes that without a stable society, the pursuit of truth is impossible. So this, uh, he kind of, this is the explain what what is the myth trying to do. And, and
0: yeah, do societies benefit from a belief system? I think is is one of the, the phrases that you used in in that reading. And Moshe asked this, or posed this idea of a creation myth, you know. And so, do we naturally need these sorts of things to um, to propel us in the right direction? Is our soul not fitted to find its own way without these belief systems being imposed on us, and without the creation myths myths being imposed on us? Um, I'm wondering what Socrates is really saying about the nature of the soul at the end of this reading that we'll get to in uh, maybe about twenty minutes. Um, you know, is is the soul not capable of doing this on its own? Does it need to have these things imposed? You know, and again, is this is this imposition of this belief system on the guardians, in particular something that's healthy? And again, let's let's discuss that. you know whether Socrates is Socrates advocating for this? Is Socrates telling us that we should set up our society in this manner with these powerful guardians uh, governing themselves according to a myth, um, you know, with the idea that somehow somebody can teach these guardians all of these virtues. So to teach somebody to be virtuous, presumably the teacher also needs to be virtuous. So where do we find the person with the original virtue who is going to impart virtue on this powerful class that's going to govern us all. Is Socrates really telling us that this is the way it should be, or is he telling us this is the way it it
2: has to be because this is a feverish and not a healthy city? Uh, Moshe, your thoughts. Well, I was going back to the, um, uh, to the quote that you made from last week.
7: Um, Glaucon says, it seems that you make people feast without any delicacies. True enough, Socrates says, I am forgetting that they'll obviously need salt, olives, cheese, boiled roots, and vegetables, and the sort uh, that they cook in the country. We give them desserts too, of course, consisting of figs, chickpeas, and beans, and they must be roast myrtle and acorn before the fire, drinking moderately, and so they'll live in uh, in peace and good health, uh, when they die of a ripe old age, I'll be. They'll bequeath a similar life to the children. Glaucon says, "If you are founding a city of pigs, Socrates, wouldn't you have? Um, uh, wouldn't you uh, fatten them on the same diet?" To which Socrates says, "Then how should I feed these people, Glaucon? In the converse way, uh, if they aren't uh, to suffer hardships." Um, um, where I where am I going with this? Socrates says, "Oh yes. Socrates says, "All right, I understand. It isn't merely the origin of the city that we're considering, it seems, but the origin of a luxurious city. And that might not be uh, a bad idea for by examining it, we might very well see how justice and injustice grow up in the city. Sorry, but then it's a small step from the luxurious city, mm-hmm. which Socrates says uh, we we should study that to the feverish city, which Socrates does not deny. He, he doesn't say the feverish city, you cannot have the feverish city for this particular study. He, he simply goes, oh, okay, we'll call it a feverish city, fine. So now we've got all the elements of what a truly, uh, uh, what a luxurious feverish city is and it may not be bad examining uh, examining that to see what justice and injustice how how they grow out of the city.
0: And, and thank you and just uh, again, I think part of what you read is um, what I put on the cover page of today's notes the um the idea that uh, the deserts uh, the, the the things that they'll need socrates says obviously salt olives cheese boiled roots vegetables and the sort that they cook in the country desserts consisting of figs chickpeas and beans myrtle and acorns i think all of those things that socrates mentioned are things that come naturally like are provided by nature and they're not man-made items and then when uh, glaucon says uh, no we're going to we're going to feed these people in a conventional way if they aren't to suffer hardship they shall recline on proper couches dine at a table and have the delicacies and desserts that people have nowadays. And couches and tables um, are perhaps not natural things. Those are man-made things. And so I'm wondering if this is maybe this connection again of, of health and nature. Um, but, you know, regardless, I think, as you said, you know, if, if it's a feverish city, uh, maybe it's one that's going too fast um, and and not in proper balance. I think Two, you know, the idea that we want to keep in mind as we get to the end of today's reading is this idea that Socrates brings forth that the city is a metaphor for the soul and this idea of using, um, you know, when they refer, for example, in the part that we'll get to next, which is the finding the four virtues, they talk about not wanting to have a civil war in the city. Um, you know, I think somebody raised the idea before of the um, the distinction between the wealth and the, and the poor. Um, and does that create a, does that divide the city into two and create a civil war? And so I think all of this is leading to the idea of the soul, and so Socrates at the end will see that lovely quote where he's kind of using the city as a metaphor for the soul, you know, we want, we want to keep the city unified, and so whether it's feverish because it's unnatural or whether it's feverish because it's going too fast, Socrates nonetheless says it's feverish, and so, you know, the question is how do we how do we govern that type of city? Um, so thank you for that, and we'll move to JK.
4: Yeah, It seems like um, his argument is um, kind of a dilemma, is if he says that, you know, what's healthy is to be natural, then why do you need, uh, uh, you know, uh, beliefs and all these artificial things to impose on what is natural? You know, then you, uh, by doing that, you would make, uh, you would uh, be going against nature and and you and it, but if you say that uh, being natural is healthy then you're you're going to be um by doing that you um uh, it's going to lead to uh unhealthiness right um, because it's you're trying to impose something that is not natural on on that uh, on what is natural so um yeah seems like a dilemma
2: Indeed, and, and, um, you know,
0: I just highlighted as well on the screen this little bit from 421C, um, you know, this idea of whether happiness is natural um, and and how to deal with happiness in the city. Um, You know, and the idea that, you know, the the question gets raised, of well, you know, if we're depriving the guardians of all of these things like, uh, you know, the ability to leave the city, the ability to have money, um, the ability to... um, you know, do fun things, they're supposed to live together in this, you know, communal situation. Um, you know, what, what's good in it for the guardians? And so the response comes, well, we should consider whether in setting up our guardians, we are aiming to give them the greatest happiness or whether since our aim is to see that the city as a whole has the greatest happiness, we must compel and persuade the auxiliaries and guardians to follow our other policy and be the best possible craftsmen at their own work. And the same with all the others in this way, with the whole city developing and being governed well, we must leave it to nature to provide each group with its share of happiness. And so this question here of whether the happiness of the city is necessarily a compromise between the the guardians and the other classes is neither is is no no class allowed to have absolute happiness. you know, and so I think I think Socrates is bringing up some issues with the way this city has been designed. And remember, the city is just a thought experiment. It's not something that they're saying uh, is i I've, I don't find anywhere in the dialogue that says, uh, this is the way we should govern ourselves. Um, they're 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 looking at the city as a thought experiment. Uh, and I think that's that's something I think that you know we keep in mind as we read this. I just wanted to move on to uh, touch, I think, relatively briefly on the four virtues here, which occupies about the middle part of today's reading, and just just talk again this connection about nature and the the way they find the virtues in the city before we go on to talk about the soul, which I want I do want to get to in probably about ten minutes. So um, this is this idea of uh, you know if you can find. Uh, three virtues, then you will naturally find the fourth being the, the only one that hasn't been found. Um, and so I just wanted to highlight, you know, this, they discuss this wisdom, for example, in this quote here at 428E to 429A. Uh, this is on wisdom. And uh, it said, indeed, of all of those who are called by a certain name, because they have some kind of knowledge, aren't the guardians the least numerous?" then a whole city established according to nature would be wise because of the smallest class in part in it, namely the governing or ruling one. And to this class, which seems to be by nature the smallest, belongs a share of the knowledge that alone among all the other kinds of knowledge is to be called wisdom. And Socrates says maybe a little bit tongue-in-cheek again, then we found one of the four virtues as well as its place in the city, though I don't know how we found it. Uh, so here Socrates is raising this idea of well okay so is our city wise because we've got this governing class in place and and the response from Glaucon yes it's wise because we've created this city and we've given them wise governing and then Socrates says well but this governing class is actually the smallest part of the city uh, and so is the whole city wise because of its smallest part you know, again, this this interplay between small and large, right? So they've they've attempted to create this city in their thought experiment uh, as something large so that they could find the virtues in the smaller part. And yet here, Socrates is calling it the irony that they've found a virtue in the smaller part, and they've applied it to the larger part, which is the opposite of what they intended to do. I'm just wondering what, what people think about this, this particular idea here that Socrates is raising this bit of irony uh, on wisdom, or or do people see it this way? Jane, your thoughts?
8: I think I agree with you, James, on the way that you view uh, Socrates' approach to this whole dialogue. I, I At least based on, I guess, other dialogues and maybe the rest of the Republic. I I don't think that Socrates would believe this sort of system of government to be the best. To me, it would even seem, I guess maybe unnatural to what was said before by Socrates. Uh, I would imagine that more of a closer interpretation would be that the, guiding philosopher would be someone who was able to overcome the cave scenario and was able to reach out into the uh, ideal, uh, into the platonic world of ideas. After having done so, that ruling philosopher is therefore obligated um, to, uh, to take the position of leader and his job is not to segregate classes strictly and restrain the the lowest one of the craftsmen and husbandmen uh, to a life that is wholly different and differently based than the life of the guardians' auxiliaries and of the philosopher ruling class as well. So to me, it would seem that his role would be to try to propagate what he was able to what he was able to uh, apprehend once having reached the platonic world of ideas and to be able to propagate that as much as he could to the lowest stratus of society. Mm -hmm. And it would make sense because you would be able to, well, at least based on, I guess, modern views of how society works, it's an open complex system. And you can't, you can't, I don't know. you can't um, divide classes in such a way without them having influence upon each other. So you can't have a class that's going to be living in a whole different, not, again, not a whole different value system, but a, quite a different value system within each of the stratas. So, and you would judge a society based on the weakest link to realize how virtuous a society is. In general, you'd have to understand how weak in terms of virtue the lowest strata of a society is. I don't, I don't know how much that makes sense. I also wanted to, because there's a lot of back and forth about. Uh, society system how how much it is natural or unnatural i don't think that we can call a human society unnatural or natural it seems like a sort of a gray area where we have this mixed media type of situation because our society is still based on a system that comes from nature we may not want to use the word system but there's we still get the the idea of hierarchy and social roles from what we've been able to observe within human, like within nature. And we still apply it to our societies as well. It's just that, again, humans, they have, they have language, we have different intellectual capacities that allow us to enter into this dimension of intersubjectivity, where we communicate with each other, and we're able to create these myths. And well, it's, it's more of a, my personal belief, I guess, that each society lives within a myth that they created, and we can't we can't go without myths because, again, and this is going back to Plato, we don't. There's no one society that carries this sort of flame of total absolute um, uh, truth. So we all have a part of a truth, and it's relevant. So you can't ever have a society built on truth. You're always going to have this element of myth and values that are. Well, any value is non is you can't prove it empirically. So I'm going to leave it at that. Thank you.
0: Thank you, and, and what you, I think, started by saying ties very nicely to what we'll talk about in our next episode. So it's a good lead into this idea of the, the philosopher ruling and the idea that the philosopher maybe is the one who can find the truth most closely. And I think you ended by saying that no society has absolute truth You know, we each have part of the truth, and somehow using communication and reconciliation process, we need to, you know, deal with these differences that naturally arise between us. Uh, So I think that was a a powerful idea, as you put it there.
2: Um, Thank you. We'll go to Nuri.
3: I was just wondering if Socrates did uh, find his folly that the utopian you know with the guardians who it, the society was the opposite that what he first envisioned it was only the guardians who had the knowledge and they were the ideal uh don't we have to raise other people up uh, empower them um to to the ideal society. We just can't hoard the knowledge or just share the knowledge between a few and uh, disregard the rest of the people. So I just wonder if he did um, find what his folly was. Mm-hmm.
2: Thank you.
0: And again, I, I think that's the question of whether we see Socrates as advocating this creation of a guardian class and the imposition of a myth on them as something that should happen as something that is ideal i think i think it's often held that this socrates believes that this is the ideal city i don't find those words anywhere and i'm i would be happy if someone could point those words out to me i don't see socrates anywhere saying that this is the ideal city i see him saying that this is an unhealthy city and I think this is why they discussed the allegory of the cave, and that's why I started this series on the Republic with the allegory of the cave, um, because I think this is uh, this is a warning that this is the path that we can uh, that we can get ourselves onto if we don't understand the distinction between truth and myth. Uh, and I think that's why they talked about the divided line. You know, again in our first episode in that in that whole sequence that we did on the allegory of the cave. So. I think that's a, an important question uh for sure um Moshe, and then Jose
7: maybe I misunderstood you, James, but um when you were reading that passage on on wisdom, um you seemed it it seemed to me that you said that um here he's found wisdom in the smallest part um and applied that to the larger part. I took that to mean. That he's found wisdom in the individual and applied that to the city. Uh, if I misunderstood that, um, I, I, I think I did, because in this particular passage, he's, he's not saying that he, he's not talking about the individual. He's simply saying that the guardians who have this kind of knowledge are the least in number. So if we have a city of a hundred people, uh, you know, let's say that you've got 3% who are going to have this particular kind of knowledge, that's not an individual, that's just, you know, numerically how it, you know, numerically how it works out, so, um, you know, maybe I, maybe I misunderstood that.
0: Mm -hmm. Well, thank you, and I should actually go, I should backtrack a little bit in the reading here, because this, this, uh, this little paragraph that I just read, it comes, what, what precedes it is, um, is that, uh, that this part at, uh, what is this, for? 428D. Um, and uh, this is between Socrates and Glaucon again. And uh, Socrates says, it, or Glaucon says, it, it is guardianship and it is possessed by those rulers we now just call complete guardians. And what does this knowledge entitle you to say about the city? Socrates asks, Glaucon says, that it has good judgment, judgment, and it, and is really wise. So Socrates is asked, what does this knowledge entitle you to say about the city? Glaucon says that it has good judgment and is really wise. And then they go on to discuss, well, where does this knowledge come from? And where does this judgment come from? And this is where Socrates in this part that I, I read uh, is saying, well, that's rather odd because it seems you, you've said Glaucon that the city is wise, but it seems that it's wise because of the smallest part in it. And does that make sense for wisdom to apply only to the smallest part? So right. that, that's what preceded that, uh, that part at uh, 428E that I read. Uh, we need to go back to 428D or so to, to kind of set that the stage for that.
7: Um, well, I, I think it makes sense. I mean, yeah. if everybody, if, if 98% of the city was wise, you wouldn't need all this other, uh, this other apparatus. Right. I mean, you, you would have, you know, the Kantian... Uh, ideal of a of a society of all reasonable men, mm-hmm. and you wouldn't need anything else. Right. Just want to point answer a question that came up on chat, um, mm-hmm. and I and James, you you've raised this too. You you've made the point is Socrates being tongue in cheek in this, okay, and and I think his tongue is firmly implanted in his cheek, and. You've referred to this as a, a thought experiment, but he's simp- he's 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 saying, well, you know, this is only a thought experiment. This is only an ideal city, but don't you really think that this is the way it should be done? I mean, that's the tongue-in-cheek part of it, is he's saying, yeah, yeah, this is an ideal city. Wouldn't it be great if we could construct one just like this? He's not saying that. He's just saying, he's just pointing out all the virtues of the uh, 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 the um the um of the society and um i mean at the very end of it um you know he says you know they they talk about uh is this at the end of it where they talk about having a government that is an autocracy or a, or a monarchy um um yeah. i i definitely think that plato is suggesting in this thought experiment that this is the way human governance should be yeah. Well, well
0: uh, I would certainly again if if those words are made clear somewhere in the dialogue, please do point them out Like anybody is free to point them out to me. I would really like to see those words or that that written clearly. uh I don't see it, but you know we're we're you know we're all reading from a different perspective, and this is great because we're all comparing our ideas and thoughts, and that's the purpose of of our dialogue and so um. You know, it remains a question, and I think certainly what you just expressed, Moshe, is I think what a lot of people express about this creation of the city and the republic uh, is that it's referred to as an ideal city. Um, so, does Socrates really mean this to be an ideal city? So, we'll leave that as, a, uh, as an unresolved question.
7: Well, let me just bring up something about irony, mm-hmm. because irony has been, you know, according to Strauss, Leo Strauss, there's, you know, a lot of irony in, in political writing because people were living in, in repressive regimes and they could not say directly what they wanted. So uh, you have to be ironic in order to make it so that the, the, that the, to make it so that the majority of the people who are reading this are seeing this as just a, um, um, uh, just a, a mental experiment. But in reality, what these people are saying without saying it, and this is the irony that, yeah, this is the way it should be. We should not be having, you know, the rule of the 30 uh, who are going to be making these uh, decisions about life and death in the city, you know, based upon their own uh, uh, political uh, whims and wills. So I think the irony, if you accept the idea of an irony, the irony says directly, Uh "This this is what it should be.
0: Thank you for that idea of, of irony, and that's something that we uh, we can explore for sure. Uh, we'll go to Jose, and then I'd like to move then to the idea of the soul, which is at the end of this reading
2: for today. Jose?
6: Uh, okay, two things. First of all, just a, a quick comment about the, the ideal city. I think at the beginning, the thought of experimenting is to build a just city. and I don't know if I... I I read the ideal city, but is he it tries to be a city that is just, and from that take us that model to define what is justice for the individual. Okay, this is one thing. I have a quote talking about wisdom. I have this note that we have this, this introduction, introduction, uh, this uh, interpretation of of this uh, this passage that we have read. This is Socrates first considers the virtue of wisdom. A quote: A wise state is a state that knows best how to deal with itself and with other states, Uh, end quote. The duty of the rulers is to determine what is best for the states. Thus, if the rulers possess wisdom, then the states will too. Whether the soldiers and laborers are wise is irrelevant because soldiers and laborers do not legislate and enforce laws. So what he's saying here is that uh, that he doesn't care about the rest. He cares about the the rulers only. If they have wisdom, then the state
2: has wisdom. Mm -hmm. I I think,
0: yeah, I mean, uh, and and thank you for that interpretation. I think that's uh, something that maybe some have read in this. But uh, again, I'm not seeing that in here. Uh, I'm actually seeing quite the opposite in here. Um, So it's something that we need to consider. I mean, it's certainly... I think it's absolutely critical to, to understanding what the purpose of the Republic is. Um, so let's move on, uh, you know, because I think, that, again, this idea of city is a metaphor for the soul. So, I mean, they set out to create the city so that they could examine it to look for justice. Uh, I don't think they set out to create a city necessarily that was going to be branded as just i think they set out to create a city so that they could look for justice um and they didn't know whether they would find it um so you know maybe that's one way of seeing it um so just to to briefly you know go through the other virtues that they they tentatively found in the city here they thought that they found courage um courage being the power to preserve um the power to preserve the laws of the city in spite of all sorts of temptations, and this is this part at 430a to 430c, so I'll let you read that on your own. This is the, the idea of uh, being dyed in the wool, you know, to, to create this, uh, to, to inculcate the laws so deeply in the uh, guardians that uh, no detergent could wash that uh, those, those beliefs in the laws out of them, and so that they will defend the city at all costs to them personally, um, and and this is what, you know, is being proposed as courage. Um, and Glaucon says, I accept your account of courage. Socrates says, accept it instead as my account of civic courage, and you will be right. We'll discuss courage more fully at some uh, other time, if you like. At present, our inquiry concerns, not it, but justice. And what we've said is sufficient for that purpose. And then they go on to talk about moderation at 430E to 431A. Um, whereas where Socrates, again, points out a bit of this, you know, smaller versus larger irony. Uh, you know, he says moderation is surely a kind of order, the mastery of certain kinds of pleasures and desires. People indicate as much when they use the phrase self-control and other similar phrases. I don't know just what they mean by them, but they are, so to speak, like tracks or clues that moderation is left behind in language. And somebody mentioned interpretation earlier, so that was an interesting connection there. Yet isn't the expression self-control ridiculous? The stronger self that does the controlling is the same as the weaker self that gets controlled, so that only one person is referred to in all such expressions. And that's maybe, again, this idea of maybe a little bit unnatural kind of connection that they found there. Uh, And then they find tentatively justice, but Socrates says in this discussion of justice at 433, a to 434D, um, you know this idea that uh, that you can't ch- change people between classes. This idea that they created this this city and this thought experiment, and they said, well, people have to stick to what they know best and stick to their natural abilities. And so we can't have, particularly in the money making classes, we can't have people moving around and doing jobs that they're not fitted for. Uh, so that was just a, a brief summary of the the virtues that they think that they've found in the city. But then Socrates says, uh, no, let's let's actually look for, um, let's not take this as secure yet. But if we find the same form, here he's talking about justice, when it seems to be in each individual person, uh, it's accepted as justice there as well, we can assent to it. So he's saying that, no, maybe we don't accept this. Definition of justice that we just found in the city that people have to keep to their, stick to their own, um, uh, the the jobs that they seem naturally fitted for. However, this natural fitting happens. Um, So, if we can move on to, did you want to add another comment there, Jose?
6: Yes, uh, yes, reinforcing that uh, my comment, and and you see that you didn't see that in that paragraph. Yes, you didn't say in that paragraph, but later when he says that. uh, Every component, every component in the city, they have to do their own job. They cannot do it at all. So the rulers is to rule. And the rulers are the ones that need wisdom. The other ones they don't need wisdom because they don't, they, 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 they won't use it because, because they are not allowed to, because it's not the function. The same courage, the, the one that they have to have courage is only the auxiliaries. The ruler, even the rulers or the producers, they don't, they don't, they don't need courage because they 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 don't they won't use it. And uh, only temperance and justice is applied to all the classes, but but wisdom and temperance is only applied to one of the of the components.
2: Well, let, let's look at you know these individual components and whether.
0: Uh... You know whether each person is in fact only suited for one thing and so let me just read let me skip to the um, to this part at the end here um, where i've got this quote here yeah it's this it's this one here at the bottom so this is near the end of our reading today at 443 d and e maybe just let me read this so this is again after they think that they found the four virtues in the city but I think Socrates is called into question kind of each one of them, you know, have they really found the virtues? And he said, well, let's then stop looking at the city and look at the individual. And so they get into this discussion of the soul. So I want to, I want to just read this part at the end, and then we can go back to discussing the soul. Unfortunately we're running short of time a little bit here, but this part at the end. So this idea that Socrates says, indeed Glaucon, the principle That it is right for someone who is by nature a cobbler to practice cobblery and nothing else, for the carpenter to practice carpentry, and the same for the others, is a sort of image of justice. That's why it's beneficial. And in truth, justice is, it seems, something of this sort. However, it isn't concerned with someone's doing his own externally, but with what is inside him, with what is truly himself and his own. One who is just does not allow any part of himself to do the work of another part or allow the various classes within him to meddle with each other. He regulates well what is really his own and rules himself. He puts himself in order, is his own friend and harmonizes the three parts of himself, like three limiting notes in a musical scale, high, low, and middle. He binds together those parts and any others there may be in between. And from having been many things, he becomes entirely one, moderate and harmonious. Only then does he act. And when he does anything, whether acquiring wealth, taking care of his body, engaging in politics or in private contracts, in all of these, he believes that the action is just and fine that preserves this inner harmony and helps achieve it. And calls it so, and regards as wisdom the knowledge that oversees such actions. And he believes that the action that destroys this harmony is unjust and calls it so, and regards the belief that oversees it as ignorance. I I just really wanted to highlight that particular part because it really struck me uh, as, as, you know, Socrates saying here is justice inside the soul. Uh, the soul is being just to itself. And I think in this, he's he's using the city as a metaphor for the soul. You know, the city is prone to civil war, for example, between itself. Um, and, you know, the rich and the poor will fight each other. Um, you know, irrationality will, will rule sometimes unless there are powerful rulers. So the question is, yeah, that's maybe in this theoretical city that they've created, but what about the soul, you know, and I think that's Socrates' overriding concern that we've seen in many of these dialogues is the soul, and so this is what they've kind of arrived at in this definition of, of justice as it as it's found inside the soul, and um, so we'll take comments in just one moment just to introduce the idea again of the soul that is, uh, starts at, you uh, uh, around I guess 436 in that area the soul is being consisting of three parts there's the appetites or the desires there's the thumos or the spirit thumos is a very difficult word to translate from greek but i think it's you know kind of often seen as spirit and in between is reason and reason is what we apply to drive us forward in time um, but there's kind of these maybe competing things in between thumos and appetite, and um, so you know he uses the example for um, uh, you know of of uh, Leontius, son of uh, Aglion. Uh, you know when when Leontius went up from the Pyrrhus along the outside of the north wall, when he saw some corpses lying at the executioner's feet he had an appetite to look at them, but at the same time he was disgusted and turned away. And so he's saying like, what what was going on inside Aglion when he's, when his appetite was driving him in this one direction to look at this horrible execution scene, you know, maybe we can relate this to, you know, seeing a pile up on a a highway Uh, and, and how does, how did the soul regulate itself? How did the soul govern itself uh, in this particular example? So, um,
2: so anyway, we'll, we'll take some thoughts on this. So we'll go, uh, Jose, and then Moshe. Well, we saw and uh, we saw in some uh, some other dialogue. I, I think a couple of dialogues
6: at least. This uh, the the allegory of the of the chariot. So the chariot is the uh, is the chariot with uh, with two horses, and. Uh, One of the horses is the what we call the spirit. So this is the drive. This is the one that uh, that uh, is basically is honor, honor, pride, shame, these kind of things. Is the 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 drive. The other one are the appetites. So the appetites like you have to eat, you have to you have to drink, you have to whatever you have to 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 procreate, anything, and you have the reason. The reason is the one that. uh, that guide the the, uh, the the horses. You need the horses. You need you need everything. You need the three of them, but you need it in a in a balanced way, because if if you leave the appetites, the appetites they will go blind and they will crash in flames. The the uh, the pride and the and the and the shame and the honor, like a spirit part, kind go for itself. And the reason itself, we it will start to death. So they, you need every part, but in equilibrium. This is exactly what he's mentioned here: that everybody does his, their function, and, uh, and everybody controls every everything.
0: Thank you for that reminder of uh, it was Piedras, I think, where um, that that image of the the soul being, you know, guided by a dark horse and a light horse. And the dark ho- horse is kind of pulling it one direction, and the light horse is pulling it in another direction. And there's this kind of civil war between the two horses. Uh, and it's the, the role of reason, uh, I think, in, in Phaedrus and in here as well to apply that balance that you spoke of, Jose. I
2: think that's uh, that was a good connection that you made. Moshe?
7: OK, uh, I have two things. Oh. On the last paragraph that you uh, read, one who is just does not allow any part of himself to do the work of another part or allow the various classes with him in, in to meddle with each other. He regulates well that he is really his own, uh, really his own and rules himself. He puts himself in order, is his own friend and harmonizes the three parts himself. My first question is, uh, is, is, an epistemological question: How does he know that he does this? I mean, what do you have that can stand out as a pair? As, as does he have a mental picture that he has? Can he share that picture with somebody else to say what is a, a harmonized soul? Now I know he gives this. Um, uh, he gives this metaphor of uh, limiting notes in a musical scale, uh, but. I, I want to point out that in different cultures there are different musical scales, and the, there are different uh, different ideas of harmony. And the Western version of harmony that we have, uh, and that the Greeks shared, is one. But you know, there are African scales, and and Middle Eastern scales, and uh, um, Asian scales. They're all quite different. So I, I think we've got a In order to be able to understand what's really going on here, we have to do. We have to do a lot of. How should I say it? We we've got to build up some sort of framework and within which someone can know that they've harmonized their soul. And the second thing, and I'm sure that it was. I'm 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 not sure of anything, but we started this with four twelve B, okay, just at the end of four. 11 just before it gets to 412 and just before it gets to 412b. Socrates says, and there are two principles of human nature. One is spirited and the other is the philosophical. Some god, as I should say, has given mankind two arts answering to them and only indirectly to the soul and the body in order that these two principles, like the strings of an instrument, maybe be relaxed and drawn tighter until they are duly harmonized. Well, I've already made my statement about harmony. The other thing here is that at the beginning of this section, the soul has two parts. And now all of a sudden, a third has arisen. So we're either in a situation where, like Socrates says, you know, if we want to find out what justice is, first we find out what wisdom is, courage and temperance. And then the fourth will appear. well, I don't really think that happens. I think there's an argument made for the for the for the desires to come in there um and if we had more time i'd I'd, I'd like to ferret that out, but I just want to point that out that at the beginning we start out with two parts, the end we want out, but three parts we seem to have skipped the the argument that 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 derives the desires because desires is left out of. Of the first thing at the very beginning.
0: Thank you, and I, and I think we've probably only got about five minutes left here. So unfortunately, but I think what we'll do is on the next episode we'll come back to the soul uh, because I think we need to do more justice, part of the pun to to the arguments here. Um, I really like that you know you made the point that there are very different versions of harmony, uh, and I think this, that's a critical point and, and a very good observation. Uh, and the question is if we um, if we are setting up a city and we are to apply a particular type of harmony to that city, in other words, a particular type of belief system that is harmonized, what system will we choose? You know and and if there are many different types of harmony, you know, the people imposing their their will on uh, you know, setting up the city and, you know, educating the guardians, how will they harmonize them and according to what system, because there are many systems, as you said. Uh, and you also raise the question of how do you know that that uh, harmony is being achieved. And I think that's a great question. Um, and I think that's where we go back to looking at how Plato or Socrates defines knowledge, you know, knowledge, he says a number of times his recollection, Then he says, Again, in Mino, uh, which is one of my favorite lines, uh, knowledge is the account of the reasons why, uh, and to me, that's the, the you know the 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 system that we establish in our minds of why things are the way they are now. Like what what is the process? What what are the sequence of events that have created things as they are now? And maybe that's the answer to harmony. So I love that question. Thank you for asking the question. Um, we'll go to Jose.
6: I, I just want to just yes, a quick uh, clarify to Mosh that uh, in the in the book four well i, I don't have with me exactly where but there is a long argument where he defines the three parts of the soul, and I think he started with wisdom and uh, with reason and, and appetites, and after that the, he he infers that there is a third part that is the spirit part, but this is a long argument, mm-hmm. so he doesn't it's not like he invents from nowhere. And right. You... I'm just
7: saying that we should ferret that out. I mean, it's not, I mean, we're we're doing ourselves an injustice to play on words here if we don't ferret that out, because it starts out with the reasonable part and the spiritual part. And from that, he says, well, we can't account for all this deviation without something else coming into it. And it's the appetites that he has to and desire that we have to add in order to be able to, uh, in, in order to be able to account uh, for the, the differences in in behavior within one person. Mm. Mm-hmm.
0: And, and, and I agree with you absolutely, Moshe, that we need to really investigate this further. You know this this idea, and you know I, I think as we think about the soul, as I was reading this a number of times, I was thinking about my own kind of habits over time. You know, and maybe we can each do this as we read it. You know, do we find in each of ourselves? Uh, some appetites or desires that aren't necessarily logical, aren't necessarily good for us, um, aren't necessarily good for other people, but they're just still appetites. Like we're just, you know, I'm I'm driven when I go shopping to buy the most expensive thing that I can find. I know it's not good for me, but i am just driven to find it. And, you know, is there a spirit in me that, um, you know, can overrule that? And then, you know, Socrates makes the, the contention or the statement that the spirit teams up with reason to overpower the appetites if the appetites get out of control. Uh, so do we believe when we look inside ourselves, do we believe that, you know, our spirit can ally itself with uh, with reason uh, to to drive us forward? Or are we driven forward by appetites? You know, so do we believe in these three parts of the soul? I just wanted to highlight here you know this this image that Socrates gives us as the you know com- compares the soul to the spinning top. And here what he's really trying to say, I think, is this the soul is a unity in itself. And you know when you think of unity, like is it is it emotion against itself? is it does it consist of opposite things? Well, if a soul is a unity, how could how could it consist of opposite things? So if you've got appetites and spirit, are those necessarily opposite? If they are opposite, then maybe we're in trouble. Our soul is no longer unified. So then he uses this wonderful analogy of a spinning top uh, that I just wanted to, to highlight here, you know, and it's, it's uh, the, the key is what he's trying to say here. Uh, it isn't with respect to the same parts of ourselves that such things both stand still and moves, you know, so the top has an axis, but it also has a circumference. And so maybe what we can think about here is the the idea that the soul maybe has a, a circle of influence and the axis maybe is you know that the line of reason you know and if the axis um, is standing perpendicular um, the, the soul is in balance but if the axis starts to tilt one way or the other that's kind of the inclination being provided to the to the, to the movement of the soul, um, you know, and it can incline one way or the other, but I think what Socrates is trying to say is that the inclination uh, of the spinning top analogy is driven by the spirit. The spirit drives it to incline one way or the other. Um, so I would just, uh, I just wanted to point that out, but I think we really do need to start the next episode with, with this idea of the soul, because the next episode, you know, as I said, We'll be talking about the idea of the um, of the uh, philosopher ruler, or the ruler who is a philosopher. Um, and again, that is at uh, let me just reread the uh, the section four seventy one a to five hundred two c, which is what we would be discussing next time. But let, let's start that discussion again with the soul and and see if we all you know, believe in this idea of a three-part soul and how that particular soul works, because I think that's really important to the discussion of, of the uh, the philosopher-type ruler. Um, so unfortunately, we are out of time today, but I really want to thank everybody for such a great discussion. I think we've had so many great points here, and really this, I want to pursue this question that, you know, does, is Socrates advocating for this as an ideal city, or is he advocating for this uh, as a as a city in which we can look for various uh, you know virtues as well as flaws? Um, so I, I wanted to let, let's let's keep that question in mind because it, it's certainly an unsettled question, and, and there's different ways and different perspectives we can apply to that. So I do want to thank everybody again for participating and uh, such a great discussion, and very much looking forward to our next discussion in two weeks. So, we'll end today's recording there. But anybody who would like to stay online um, for Plato's Cafe for the next half hour, just a casual discussion, you are more than welcome to. So, we'll wish everybody a a good uh, two weeks and we'll see you in two weeks' time. Thank you.